Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 68. Yeah. It's like the kind of the, the big news this week is really no news because we didn't get a new beta this week. Or last week. Yeah. yeah maybe by the time this goes out to our listeners that we'll have a new beta, but I don't know that they typically release new betas on holiday weekends. I know a lot of times they've skipped ones when like skipped a week when 4th of July came around where a beta was due. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys remember that? uh, Whoever thinky bits is, they put out a, uh, a graph of the iOS days and beta for all the different beta versions. And as of recording uh, this beta one is the longest uh, beta one of a major iOS release so far. Yeah. They did have a beta for point releases for iOS 9 and OS 10. I don't know if it's the same resources working on, on both betas, but... I imagine it has to get through some level of QA. Yeah. Well, and people seem generally happy with beta 1 this year, too. There yeah. wasn't There wasn't as much uproar, so maybe they're just like, oh, well, we'll wait until we get some more stuff. Yeah. My biggest issues are related to orientation change and audio sometimes as as with most betas is a little unreliable other than that I, I haven't had too many issues yeah it seems like those are like recurring issues on betas it makes me wonder if like they crank up the debug logging and that screws up stuff that requires very intricate timing like audio and orientation changes or something yeah i've noticed playing podcasts in my car that every so often i'll get a, a tiny little pause in the audio that's over bluetooth for the first few days with the beta on on the phone occasionally i would get no audio um since since then i haven't had too many issues but i've also rebooted the device a few times and that seems to help yeah my ipad seems to forget how to rotate occasionally it requires a reboot that's pretty much a daily thing for me i think what i have to do is like rotate it a full 360 degrees and then it seems to finally catch up do you do the figure eight like you do to to <laughs> make the compass work i've tried, <laughs> tried that that? <laughs> that didn't actually work it was the at least the last time i tried it the full 360 seemed to do the trick hmm well maybe i'll try that i'm gonna have to try something like that too <laughs> yeah but yeah i mean all in all it's not a horrible thing that we haven't got a new beta so, I can live with it. And if we get one this week, that'll be great. I would like to see another beta before they give betas out to the public because they said yeah. they would do that in July. They didn't say when, but we're in July now. So Yeah, true. It usually means the end, not the beginning of the period that they say. <laughs> Opus Sourcing yeah. Swift was before the end of the year and they, they waited to December, so... I suspect we'll see the same same kind of uh, end of July time frame. Yeah, I get a lot of people asking me how they can get the new beta, things like the messages and whatnot. I guess they love their emojis. Well, the, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Apple's 
got the wrong idea. I think they picked an app or a feature that general public is going to love, or at least you know will appeal to them. It's not yeah. so exciting for developers, but it will probably be used a lot. The last time they did an update of all the uh, all the emoji, I think that was like the fastest uptick a yeah. point release an iOS ever had. So yeah. if they want people to update, <laughs> they're going to get some updates with yeah. this one. Well, like stickers yeah. is a, essentially like custom emojis that. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you know, I apparently custom emojis is becoming pretty popular. I think I saw an article that like location specific emojis, especially, are fairly popular with people these days how does that work did your taco change styles based on what part of the country you're in like you know like i don't know like you know we're in cincinnati so you might have like cincinnati reds or um cincinnati skyline or um local restaurants local venues local landmarks Hmm. So if I said baseball, I don't know if there is a baseball emoji. I guess there is, but I don't know. no, no, it would doesn't. it have a? It wouldn't change the logo or anything like that no. on the ball or something. And okay. I I don't know what apps support customizing emojis. I know um, like Slack, for example, you can add your own, and that's a fairly popular thing. I think we yeah. have a few uh, Cincinnati specific ones and a few of our Slack chats. I'm not huge on emojis, so I didn't do that to our Slack channel. <laughs> if there's any requests for them, I might put them out there. We could uh, maybe put a Forstall and Johnny Ive emoji out there. That might be might be fun. Yeah, what about Hair Force One? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can use the picture I got with him this year yeah. or the year before that. I think you know, Disney is probably going to be the most successful with the sticker packs. I suspect just because they have <laughs> the licensing for so much of the content. Yeah, they're all about characters and stickers are great for that. I think Apple's going to have their hands full in uh license uh infringement debates for the first <laughs> few months. Yeah, it'll be pretty simple. Probably you just have to fill out some kind of form that says, "Yeah, I own this content." And if you obviously don't, they'll reject it. And Disney's fairly protective, as well as some other brands like that. There's yeah. others that are a lot seem to be a lot more open, like uh, Mojang with the Minecraft content. There's tons of fan art and books and contributions out there, so and they seem to actually be all in favor of that, at least unofficially. Yeah. So where do you guys fall on the? It's a Spotify subscription complaint. I, you know, I think there's a couple aspects to this. And for listeners that haven't really kept up on this, there's been a number of articles uh, with Spotify and Apple kind of launching attacks back and forth, uh, mostly kind of instigated by Spotify. Um, I guess they had a rejection uh, when they tried to force a login or or encourage people to go out to their website to subscribe rather than doing it inside of of uh, the app store or, or through an in-app purchase. Yeah, that sounds right. And, and really, I think their big beef is that they're tired of Apple taking their cut. Yeah. And 
Apple well, isn't providing them much, at least for the subscription revenue itself. I mean, I would say Apple has some pretty restrictive rules about just linking out to the website in general that that personally I've you know run across and think they're really annoying. Uh, but I mean, it's it's business, so you know they want their they want their cut. So if you wanna if you wanna play in the iOS playground that's you got to go by their their rules it kind of sucks but i mean they already kind of account for it if if you get a subscription in spotify's app you you pay a premium because they pass it along to you i mean that's always an yeah. option you can do is pass along the extra cost to the customer yeah a lot of a lot of developers don't do that that that's kind of a rarity uh but you know it's Spotify in their you know it from them directly said that Apple Music has actually helped their business more than hurt it so they've actually increased sales significantly uh since Apple Music was launched and that seems to continue but they're also losing money every year i think they're losing less money than they used to but the licensing fees for the the content is significant so you know from their perspective paying 30% to apple for every in-app purchase every month is is to some degree ridiculous because you know apple's not really doing much after that initial download and and purchase well yeah and some some businesses don't make enough money that they have a spare 30% that they can get rid of right i mean that's yeah. i'm that's why they pass it on to the customer because they probably wouldn't make much money if they just said all right well if you get it through apple then we'll yeah. give them some more money for fun and apple did just recently cut the the split their their portion of the split down to 15 percent for users that stay subscribed for over over a year yeah so you know in a way that that's a huge improvement. Um, I think, you know, the, Apple would claim that they've done most of the hard work of providing a marketplace, making their, their store available to hundreds of millions of users. And Spotify has had over 160 million downloads from the app store. So Apple has provided them quite a bit of service. So it's only fair that they're treated like every other developer and expected to share the same amount. If you were to sell product in, say, Walmart, for example, um, you know they'd they'd want to make some money too every time they sold a product. But you know, the, the Walmart also wouldn't let you put up a sign at, right next to your product to say, "Hey, you don't want to pay this much? Come to come to our website and buy direct." You know, Walmart would never agree to that, and I don't think anybody would trying do that yeah i think for me the issue comes down to is that apple has always said that they don't make any money from the app store and well that was a that, that was an old yeah. thing now they're a services company <laughs> right <laughs> so that's where i'm going so that yeah i understand that they probably don't make any money on the app sales and the actual downloads because yeah that content is coming from them they're they have to have all the approval process and everything like that. But subscriptions are 
kind of the razor blades to the razor the the shaving model so you buy the the razor it's really cheap you buy the blades continually and that's where the people make their money and it seems to me like subscriptions are like that there's especially for something like Spotify where the content is not hosted on Apple on any Apple infrastructure probably the main thing that you that Spotify does is verify receipts if that using Apple infrastructure I knowing Spotify I imagine they have their own subscription model verification stuff too so yeah I don't know where the continual cost for subscriptions would be for Apple and how they could justify taking 30% and then 15% later. Yeah. Well, I think to some degree, that's why they dropped it to 15%. But at the same time, you know, I I think I agree with you that there are certain things that it it doesn't seem justifiable, especially for like a monthly subscription, especially when Apple doesn't let you provide alternatives in the app to, to do it elsewhere. So you can't even provide a link back to the website if if you allow purchases on your website. Uh, so they're fairly particular about that. Then you add in the fact that Apple doesn't let you require, and I think this is where Spotify may, may have gotten in trouble as well, is uh, requiring people to provide details like an email address before they can make an in-app purchase. So you will get rejected if Apple catches you doing that. Yeah, I think what they were doing was trying to email out of band saying, hey, come to our website and yeah, buy a subscription rather than doing it within the app. Yeah. So, and, and you know, the, there's that part of the complaint and then there's the fact that Apple has their own music subscription business that arguably doesn't have to pay that 30%. So, you know, they're, they're either more profitable or... Um, you know, more successful because 30% of the revenue isn't automatically cut. So, and this isn't just Apple, it's Google and then Amazon's getting ready to launch a very similar service if they haven't already. So, so, you know, those companies don't have to split the revenue on their platforms, but the Spotify's and the titles and, and other, uh, music provider streaming services have to to split their revenue with with their competitors essentially but if if jay-z who had who owns title wanted to go make his own smartphone and sell it through his app store he could do the same thing apple Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> apple doesn't have a a monopoly they're a pretty small percentage of the of the active users so there's not at least in the u.s and Maybe the EU, it doesn't seem like there's any law preventing them from doing that. It's just business, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, but the startup capital on creating a whole new phone is not, it's pretty much beyond oh. just about everybody. Oh, yeah, I'm not, saying that that's a, Jay-Z. I'm not saying that's a reasonable thing for <laughs> for him to do, but... But Spotify could get bought by Facebook yeah. and then, you know, create their own platform, you know, they're... There's other paths to that. The The other yeah. aspect of this, and, uh, you know, there's rumors that Apple is thinking about buying Tidal, which is Jay-Z's streaming music company. 
um, which historically has been kind of anti-Apple because um, you know Jay-Z's company wants a better uh, percentage going to the artist. But between Tidal and Apple, they own most of the exclusive deals. So if Apple buys Tidal, Apple will have almost all the exclusive uh, releases and Spotify can't really compete with that either. I I really hope that Apple tries to steer clear of doing things that are going to get them in some kind of antitrust crosshairs because last thing we need is Apple going through a long drawn out antitrust battle like Microsoft did in the 90s. Well, you got to have a monopoly though. They well, don't. <laughs> it's it's already getting well, spun up, uh, you know, apparently Elizabeth Warren's you know, launching some shots at Apple and Google for not having an equal playing ground for their competitors like Spotify. And I think that's part of what's given Spotify this this courage to be a little bit more aggressive in their attacks. But it it is kind of this weird thing. Like without Apple, Spotify pretty much wouldn't exist. I mean, yeah, you could get it through the browser on your desktop, but, you know, where you want streaming music, in my opinion anyway, is on that mobile device that you carry with you everywhere. Alex, there is another phone platform, despite what we may believe. Well, you know, and I'm just like grouping them in together, like whether it's Android. I'm sure Spotify has similar complaints with Android and Google Well, Google Play. lets you, I mean, they let them do whatever they want. You can. No, that's not, not necessarily. I mean, they have very similar policies. It just tends to be more of a reactive enforcement instead of a proactive enforcement. And, and it may not get enforced as consistently not that apple's that consistent either i don't think google has any of the rules about like not being able to link out to your site or require i I know they have some rules around in-app purchase i you know this has come up before i'm not the we'd have to have somebody more uh informed on the android side but my understanding is there are similar rules for google they're not as strictly enforced um but They've been adding more and more rules uh, in that space in the in the recent months or years. So you know, I, I don't think they're that different on Android. So anyway, so you know, it's already becoming a political debate whether it goes beyond just uh, people launching attacks. We'll see, but you know, it seems like there's more right. important things for. You know, our politicians to be worried about then who's making more money on on the backs of artists. Well, <laughs> I, I think when you put it that way, <laughs> it's it's a lot of it's the current political climate too. It's nice and easy to take pot shots at the establishment. Well, I I think you know just to kind of bring this back to to everybody else more than just like the music aspect of it, but I mean we all kind of live under the same in-app purchase guidelines that and that's one area that easily causes a red flag that you know if anytime you do anything with in-app purchases you're going to get scrutinized more than than most other apps because it's an area that apple tends to look at very closely and if they do change the rules if they do open it up where you can sell subscriptions out outside of the app store through the app um 
I know a lot of people who would be really happy about that. But it would be nice if they maybe just said, okay, you can sell subscriptions through using Apple Pay, and that's the only kind of cut we're going to take. That would be pretty nice, as long as all of the content is hosted off of Apple or yeah. away from Apple devices, Apple servers and infrastructure. Well, that's definitely like a transaction fee is definitely a, a much more fair cut on something like that, where at that point they're not providing bandwidth storage or any other um, types of services, you know, just, just charge on the transaction as opposed to this 30, 70 or 15, 85 cut. Yeah. It's right. less uh, mafia-like. All right. I don't think we're going to see a huge change in this anytime soon. I think we'll see them slowly kind of pull back, make it a little bit more fair like they've done recently, changing the split. But I don't think Spotify is going to win this battle anytime soon. And I'm kind of on the fence whether or not they deserve it any more than anybody else. They could maybe win it behind closed doors. And yeah. We'll find out later. There's definitely people who suspect that the big media companies are already getting a different split anyway. Yeah. Although Amazon's not, they're still not in there. Well, Amazon, <laughs> Amazon has a, their expectations or at least, you know, Jeff Bezos said that they're happy to build for Apple platforms if they're pre-installed and they get a much more fair split. Um, pre-installed is, is kind of pushing it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want my app pre-installed because yeah. then I'm kind of locked down to OS updates. Well, you used to have YouTube pre-installed on all devices uh, on iOS devices, and later on Apple TVs. Uh, so I think Google that, Maps, yeah, all the Google stuff. Yeah. yeah. So it's not unprecedented, but Apple has definitely been moving the opposite direction. Yeah, that's one of their differentiating points: is we don't have all this junk installed. <laughs> True that. <laughs> as opposed to android phone it has all those things you can't delete all right so fast lane yeah, so it's plugins yeah so they now have a plugin model so um you could always write addition additional actions for fast lane uh, but now i guess you've got a much easier way to to create a plugin if you want to add some sort of service um tie-in like you want to post a message to, I don't know, let's say Snapchat instead of something like Slack or something they already have built in. You don't have to wait for them to add it. You can just um, write a plugin. They've got a nice little command line utility that'll get you started and and uh, go from there. I find it interesting because the fast file, a lot of people maybe don't realize this, but it's just Ruby. Yeah. So you could write your own functions in there. We have done that at work. So I mean, we have it posting to a um, Slack-like hosted environment whenever a build is completed. And that's just through a, like a wget command that's being created from our fast file. Yeah, this wasn't necessarily something I saw as like a huge gap in, in Fastlane's offering, you know, for me, it's, it's already fairly robust and fairly easy to extend. So, um, yeah. you know, for me, I'd, I'd rather see more time spent in, in making it kind of a more bulletproof and easier 
um, set up for somebody getting started in it than adding more features personally. I, I suppose this just formalizes things a little bit. Yeah. And, and I, I personally don't know what the difference between a plugin and creating a custom action is. You know, you could do that before. At least that's my understanding. So, um, but maybe, maybe, maybe it is just a more formal specification for that. Yeah. We had a fast lane episode queued up for a while and then we kind of dropped that. Maybe we need to revisit that in the future. Yeah. It's definitely becoming a lot more commonplace. It's one of those things you kind of wish you didn't have to need. <laughs> and, you know, it'd be nice if the platform had a, a more robust build system and, and there were some improvements this year, but we'll, we can get into that in a later episode. Yeah. So uh, next topic, iCloud core data support deprecated. Yeah. Hopefully then, no one was using that anyways. <laughs> yeah. We knew it was pretty much deprecated anyway, right? Yeah. And Apple's definitely been pushing people towards the iCloud drive and uh, CloudKit approach. And then CloudKit is a much more easily implemented and easily understood uh, solution and you know, I, I haven't heard really any complaints about CloudKit, um, but iCloud core data support has always been a very difficult thing to implement and support. Yeah. CloudKit doesn't really s support local data, right? You still have to kind of right. implement that on your own side. So I think you either have to require it uh, or you have to have some alternative local storage if you don't want to use, uh, if the user doesn't have iCloud um, enabled. Mm -hmm. So I think this this iCloud core data thing was supposed to be the, the magic glue layer between the cloud and your local data storage. Yeah, and to some degree, yeah. it was, you know, people who already had a pretty big investment in, in core data, theoretically didn't have to do a whole lot of work to get uh, cloud syncing. Right. Um, Allegedly, it was like check a few boxes and... Yeah. Write a few lines of code and here you go. Change how you get your coordinator and yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah but, but instead it was, here's all your, here's all your headaches and your crash reports and support requests. And, and there were yeah. definitely improvements, uh, incremental improvements every year. But I think most people had, had given up on it by that point. And, uh, you know, reading some of the articles, I, I think people still kind of struggled with it even after the improvements were there. Yeah, I mean, I've more or less even just given up on core data, but the... You know, it, it is kind of the sledgehammer of data storage tools. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's extremely powerful, uh, but if, uh, if all you need is something simple, um, there's a lot of alternatives that are easier. Yeah, it's extremely easy to slip up too. That's, <laughs> yeah. That was the catch. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's the trouble we had uh, with you know anytime we had like you know somebody who was fairly novice join the team or you know a junior developer, um, and and even like through uh, the Cocoa Heads groups, you know that was always like a point of of frustration and and common mistakes is figuring out the right way of using core data and. You know, there were a lot of common themes of, of mistakes people would make. 
so it was not right. in in a way it was really easy to get started but it was also really easy to make serious mistakes that were hard to troubleshoot later yeah and they they did add flags and things that you could pass in at runtime to make life a little better to debug during development time like there's that one that'll throw the exception when you modify the an object off of its context thread i believe i don't remember what that flag is called now but that was relatively new i think in ios 8 and and now that like they've even with ios 10 added some better concurrency support in core data and we need to visit that in an upcoming episode yeah and and not to you know just say negative things about it i mean if if you look at all the things that core data can do it is an extremely powerful framework that can do a lot of things it's just the bigger question is do you need all that functionality and for <laughs> yeah. some some applications it makes perfect sense and others it it just doesn't so yeah, yeah. definitely warrants uh, further discussion, especially with some of the updates they've made uh, with iOS 10 and uh, macOS. Yeah, so in a little while, we're going to try to deprecate our little storage shootout episode that we did early on, which is a good episode <laughs> if you want to try to find that in the archives. We covered a lot of different alternatives to core data. I think the favorite I had was Yap, and I, I still use that frequently. So uh, another uh, deprecated item here, Facebook is shutting down Paper, which was their cool little animation-heavy version of Facebook. But the thing that was driving that was called Pop. They released a little open-source framework called Pop. And that more or less seems abandoned these days. Right. Well, yeah, they shut down the the group at Facebook, Facebook like creative labs in December who, who did this app and they did some other ones that their apps have also been shut down. And it looks like the, the guy who did paper has left the company. So it seems like that stuff may be kind of dead in the water at this point. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think that's probably the, the more disappointing part of this is that creative labs team produced a lot of the open source projects, not just pop, but a number of other things like uh, um, origami and and uh, several other open source contributions. So, and you know, this was a team that was essentially given free reign to be creative and invent new things, new ways of doing things. Um, and, and paper, in a lot of ways, was an experiment to to try different things, different types of animations and interactions, and uh, and other. Other types of innovations. Um, yeah, I never used it. I, I don't know. <laughs> like outside of just like trying it out and seeing seeing what it felt like and you know how how the interactions worked. It uh, I I don't know if they really ever made a, a great case for why you would use it over um, one of the other Facebook apps, but or the main app itself. Yeah. But yeah. And Apple or I, uh, Facebook's kind of had this struggle with uh, what do we put in the in the main Facebook app versus break off to a separate one. And lately, they've been breaking off these more single focused apps like Messages. Yeah, I uh, 
I have I have a problem with these apps that are very gesture intensive and they're not always easy to remember these gestures or to discover them. Pop did do a great or not pop, but paper did a great uh, introductory experience where you kind of had these videos and some voice talking to you about what to do and how to interact with it. But if you were to say, take that, go through it, put it down, come back to it in a month, you were kind of lost. So it's, it wouldn't. Um, so I guess uh, the react native team is, wasn't part of that creative labs. Huh? No, I don't th think so. The it would be nice to see that shut down. <laughs> Man. <laughs> <laughs> no no love for JavaScript. Sorry. <laughs> Actually, I think on the surface, React Native was a seems like a good idea, but from what I've seen of the implementations, the way people try to work it out, they en end up re-implementing a lot of uh, built-in iOS things or built-in native controls and plat platform ideas. And they just never feel native anymore. So, so yeah. Andy Matushak did a talk at I, th I think it was the last uh, React JS conference, and uh, he generally is very pro uh, reactive, uh, you know, functional UI. I think you know mm -hmm. uh, people who don't know Andy Matushak, he was one of the early engineers on UIKit and built a lot of the stuff we use today. Um, but he's also kind of come to the realization that, you know, if he were to build it today, he'd probably do it differently. And, you know, he's a big fan of functional programming, reactive programming. Yeah, but React Native doesn't really, it doesn't, um, the only thing that like functional reactive programming and React Native have in common is that they both have React in their name. Well, the the UI is in, is arguably stateless rather than like mutating just a part of the UI, it re-renders the whole thing or, you know, there's a diffing algorithm that just re-renders the parts that changed, but you don't pass it. You don't mutate the state in the view layer. You pass it a whole new state object and then it figures out what component visible components need to be re-rendered. Uh, so in that sense, yeah. it is, it is a little bit more functional, um, functional. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, his talk was more around the, when you, when you start trying to implement gesture handlers, things get really tricky. You know, if you just look at like the maps UI alone, you've got to use fuzzy logic to figure out, you know, is it a tap, a zoom, a pan? Um, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's not that simple. And he was kind of saying you have your work cut out for you uh, when you try and implement this because, you know, Apple didn't, didn't necessarily uh, have an easy time with it either. Mm -hmm. So, well, and that's, we looked at uh, reSwift several months ago and interviewed Carl Bowden on that. And one of the, catches to that or the gotchas they say is that implementing animations in those types of frameworks those redux style frameworks is not easy so yeah i can i can see how that would be hard yeah 
So it, it's a complicated problem, um, and you know, it's it's far from being complete, you know, on the React JS side or, or React Native side. And yeah. I don't know, you know, maybe React JS, JS doesn't have to worry about the uh, touch interactions as much because it's more of a web-based solution. But React Native definitely, you know, that's something they have to solve if they haven't yet. You know, and, we, and you mentioned the pop animator from the coming from the paper, and you know that's one of those things that seemed really cool at the time. And later, Apple added the spring animation timing, and now with iOS ten, they added the uh, property animator. Uh, so there's very little in pop now that you can't do with what's built in. So I could see that starting to to diminish in in use as well as some of the Mm -hmm. other open source projects that came out of that async display kit probably still has a place but now that table views and collection views will do kind of pre-render off screen um i don't know if it's as useful as it was yeah async display kit was all the rage for a while and it's still still being actively maintained yeah i just don't know I know you had to have all these different parallel classes to, uh, like, you had your own, like, parallel async label and different buttons and all these other things. And I think that seemed a little odd to me to try to work through. I mean, it's one of those, one of those frameworks that someone created because they wanted to to make things better and they would love it to get Sherlock. So yeah, I'd like to think that because of paper and pop and some of these other things that that team created, UI kit is better now, you know, you know, the transition coordinator, the interactive transitions, the, the property animator, uh, all these things that Apple has added. I think in, I'd like to think in large part, it's because of, of groups like this that kind of pushed the envelope and showed yeah, this is possible even if you aren't building the UI kit framework yourself. Yeah. Functionally, the UI kit's probably better. None of us can speak for the code, but if it's doing a whole lot of things that it wasn't designed to do in the beginning, it it might not look that great in under the hood anymore. But uh, I suspect like any engineer, uh, the folks that worked on UI kit would probably like to take what they've learned and and start from scratch and do something new, but I don't think we're going to see. You know, some people have said that UI Kit's kind of showing its age and is ready to be replaced, but I I don't see Apple just kind of throwing that away and and starting from scratch. And you know, maybe we'd see some alternatives come along, but. I don't know. Those people haven't worked with AppKit much. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, (laughs) AppKit is still going strong and that's, you know, 20 some years old, a couple decades. Yeah. So it's not to say it's perfect, but it's, it hasn't gone anywhere. Yeah. It's got quite a bit of legacy in it. And no matter what you do, you know, it's that UI layers is non-trivial. So it's, there's always going to be compromises. Yeah. And yeah. I was really hoping we would see UX kit released to the public this time around. Yeah. 
I don't know if we ever will at this point. My uh, my prediction for it keeps getting less and less strong. <laughs> yeah, this year, yeah. and we talked about this in the last episode, but this year was more about, it seemed a lot more user-focused, more about what are the apps that users have and how can we make things more integrated, make it more of a platform than a bunch of standalone apps. Yeah, and it seems to be that the the core of that is NS user activity. Yep. Uh, that that came up in several of the talks. So yeah, so we're uh, talking about all these episodes that we're going to have, and I think NS user activity is going to fall pretty high up on the list for that one as well. So we got we got a lot of topics to talk about coming up, but right now we're we're pretty much out of time. So you guys want to tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo. And I'm at Sam Quarter. The podcast is at Shared Inst. You can email us if you like at sharedinstancepodcast at gmail.com or just join our chat community at chat.sharedinstance.com and let us know directly what you think. We'd love to hear from you. All right, I'll see you later, guys. <laughs> <laughs>